And so when our soul goes to sleep, it's not because we become unconscious. It's because we float up to this fantasy land that we've created. And some of you introverts have created a vast, sophisticated fantasy universe, and you love to go up there and play and spend your days. And, uh, and I understand that because I am an introvert and that's exactly what I do. And, and then that place, man, narratives are going on all the time. Narratives that I don't have the time or energy to fact check. They're just narratives constructed from my emotional experiences of circumstance or other people and then taken as that is the entirety of the truth about them. And that's the narrative that's created in my head. And, and if I am not conscious about it, what happens is, is I slip up there and I start interpreting all the events of my day according to those narratives. And for Artie, those narratives can go very dark and unhealthy. Therefore, I am viewing all my encounters with this veil of unhealth and woundedness that comes from the narratives I've created in my head. Well, if I'm not, if I don't check myself or have someone else check me on that, I, I can wake up on Friday and realize, wow, since about last Saturday morning, I've been loving, living up here in this realm of false narratives that seem so real to me, but because I've been preoccupied here, I've been distracted from the real world around me because my soul had been lulled to sleep through this desire to escape, which is a habit that I've built very sophisticatedly over the past 49 years. And so, um, so that's what I'm talking about. It's that we, if you, on the outside, we might not know that your soul is asleep, but you're living without any consistent conscious awareness of the presence of the spirit, of the goodness of God, of the love of God that defines who you are. And if I'm not living out of the reality of the love of God that defines who I am, I'm living out of the reality of these narratives up here that lull my soul to sleep. This is why I don't ever struggle with the question, is there life after death? But I consistently struggle with the question, is there life before death? Because that's the question that's the ache of my soul. That's what I'm asking about. And I want to enter into that life and not be lulled asleep by it. Well, throughout the streams of Christian history, the three major streams being the Orthodox Church and uh, the Catholic Church, really two streams, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. And then in the Catholic Church, we have the Western tradition. And from that, we split from Catholic to Catholic and Protestant. And then the Protestants then have a tradition of now having over 500,000 different denominations. So they really took split to the next level. And we took split to the next level. And so, but that's what we reap because in the beginning of our movement, we thought, well, the only way to be pure Christians is to separate ourselves from the ones we deem as not as quite legitimate Christians as the rest of us. But that's another sermon, right? So, but, we, but I do think we bear the fruit of that. We, we, we are a multi-fractured movement with, with hundreds of thousands of different denominations. And yet, with all of that disunity, if you take a look at the streams of Christianity, be they Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, or the multifaceted denominational system from the Protestant movement, you will st still nonetheless see a commonality, and that is an emphasis on a life of prayer. 
Now, it's emphasized differently. It's talked differently. And I do think in the evangelical movement, we have moved away from prayer as communion, which was, would have been one of the primary ways it would have been thought about in the first thousand years of Christianity. And prayer has become a utility. It's a, it's a tool for us. It's a tool for us to get God to do the things that we want him to do. Here is the problem when you separate communion from the utility from the utilitarian nature of prayer. And I'm not denying that. I mean, please, I I am not up here declaring. In fact, next week, we're going to talk more about this. I am not saying that God doesn't move in the world in response to our prayers. I do believe that. What I am saying is, if I primarily think of prayer as a tool to get God to do things in my life or in the life of others or in the world, and I bypass seeing prayer as a relational communion, well, then I've gutted God's heart for prayer. He doesn't need us to be aware of what's wrong in our lives. He doesn't need us to be aware of what's wrong in the world. He doesn't need us to convince him to go love people where there's not love. He doesn't need us to convince him to go execute justice where there's injustice. In fact, you could say he doesn't need us at all, but he wants us. God's heart is love and love's nature is to give and he wants to give himself to us in relationship. So if we take relationship out of prayer and only use it for its utilitarian concerns, then we're like uh, uh, trust fund people who, who have no interest in our parents other than for the money that we can get from them but there's not any real relational connection there. And that's why it's so critical to understand that prayer must begin first as relational communion. It's the thing that keeps our soul awake. You can go do work for the Lord with your soul asleep. Or you can do work from the, with the Lord with your soul awake. And so what we wanna do is appreciate how we keep our soul awake. And so here we go. We're going to look at Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. So let's take a moment and read it. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, my intention for these messages is for this to be Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, part 1. And next week will be Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, part 2. Now... Uh, a question that I, when I wrote this out as a question after I hit the question mark I went this is a question that only Artie Favre would wonder uh, I realized this is not a clever thing to put in the sermon notes because no one's going to care about this question however I put it in there to make a point why not just say we're studying verse 4 verses 2 through 3 uh, uh, 1 and 2 today um, I'm sorry verses 2 through 4 today and verses 5 and 6 next week The reason why I called it part one and part two is that we're gonna look at these ideas separately, but it's absolutely critical that we realize they are the same. This is not, 
oh, this part he's talking about our relationship with God and this part he's talking about our relationship with outsiders. No, they all run together simultaneously. They are more like a coin rather than two separate ideas. And we have to understand that these exhortations are ultimately the same because private prayer prepares us for public ministry. Intercession prepares us for ministry. Contemplation prepares us for service. Another way of saying it is that inward intentionality cultivates outward intentionality. That's why it's so critical for keeping our soul awake, which ultimately is simply to say awareness begets awareness. And once I begin with an awareness that I am living life physically in the United States, but my soul and my spirit is living in the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That awakened awareness then allows me to have an experience with all my interactions without the day that I place them in the context of the kingdom of heaven, not simply the kingdom of earth. So awareness begets awareness, which is why we have to cultivate a rich life of prayer. Prayer is perhaps the most vital element in the cultivation of relevant and healthy spirituality. If there is a believer who, because of physical disability, can't ever realistically live their life of faith in the context of going to church, or if there's a believer that has a mental or learning handicap such that they will never be able to actually read the Bible, those individuals can still have a powerful life with God because they both have access to a life of prayer. It is the one thing that is non-essential. And remember, we are evangelicals. We were people of the book, which I think is great because I think that if we have the privilege to have access to the book, it carries with it a responsibility to be aware of the contents of the book. I'm not diminishing that. But what I am saying is it's easy for us to be chronological bigots and not appreciate the fact that our little time in history is very different than the rest of history. And for the majority of the Christian faith's existence, the majority of its inherents were illiterate, didn't have access to a Bible, didn't have access to the Bible in their language. And yet, I will say to you, they did not starve spiritually because they had the Holy Spirit and they had a deep, rich life rhythm, rhythm of prayer. And because of that, they had access to everything that they needed because Jesus himself said, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away in about 400 years, people are gonna to put together a book that will then guide you into all truth. That's not what he said. Anybody remember what he said? Why is it better that he ascend to heaven? Because he's gonna send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be the one to guide you in all truth. Again, not to diminish the role of the written scriptures. But what I am saying when we are going to Faith 101, the most foundational skill for faithfulness is learning how to live a life rooted in a rhythm of prayer. And so our big idea this morning is simply a daily rhythm of prayer empowers us to intentionally keep in step with the Spirit. 
So let's take a moment and let's break down this verse. And what you will see is that even though there are lots of words and phrases, even in the first um, two verses, uh, three verses, two through four, um, there's actually really only two commands that are here. And the two commands are devote yourselves to prayer and to pray for us. That's the commands and these are, or these are the exhortations the, uh, uh, of, these two, of, of these three verses. Devote yourselves to prayer and then he modifies that command. Devote yourselves to prayer by staying alert in it and staying alert in it with thanksgiving. More on that in just a moment. And then he says, pray for us. And then he begins to modify the nature of his prayer request. Pray for us for what? Well, basically, the, the primary request is that God may open a door. Which again, this is asking God to move out in the world, which is the aspect of prayer we're going to talk more about next week. And then he says that God may open the door for three reasons. To us, to speak the mystery of Christ so that I can make it known. This is what Paul is asking for in their prayer. So what, what, in, in, their, in their call to prayer. So let's take this a bit at a time. Number one, he says to devote yourselves to prayer. One commentator suggested that an appropriate translation of this word and this sentence structure would simply be prayer, devote yourselves to it. It is the emphasis is that a life of prayer is something that ought to preoccupy us. It should be so much a rhythm of who we are that it is an observable characteristic to our entire paradigm or philosophical approach to life. Now, we're going to talk a little bit of those of us who've gotten burned out on prayer in just a few moments. So if you're there and you're like, I just don't know if I can hear another sermon on prayer, bear with me. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute because I think that your apprehension is completely legitimate and I want to talk a little bit about how we might overcome that apprehension. But for now, let me just emphasize that this is why a time of pr that prayer is something we're called to be devoted to. Of course, the word devote simply means to give up or appropriate to or concentrate on a particular pursuit, occupation, purpose, cause, etc. So when we say devote ourselves to prayer, we're saying we are willing to give up space for prayer. And we are willing to appropriate space, whether that's physical space, emotional space, mental space, or just time space. We appropriate that space for prayer, or we concentrate on the pursuit and cultivation of prayer. And, I will, and, and this is something that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it needs to be said. Prayer is a skill that matures and develops over time. Just like if you think about the awkward days of when you were first dating your partner compared to how the ease with which you re relate now, there was maturity that took place, okay? Um, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't thoughtful about who Jen was and her soul and her heart. I was just trying to figure out what are the things that I can do so that this night might end up with a kiss. That was exclusively my goal. That's all I thought about. So. So, so, so dates even were a long process of self-serving. If we could have skipped the movie and the dinner and just went to the kissing, that's what, if there was a model, I would have pursued that. Because I was interested in that experience, not so much in getting to know the person, but over time and through years of marriage, you get to see the depth of someone's soul and the beauty of who they are in an utterly unique way. And you realize 
dating, my immaturity in dating, I'm so glad that I grew beyond that so I could see the real mystery and the beauty that's here before me. It's the same way with prayer. It's okay. You know, people, you know, people get embarrassed and say, I just don't really know how to, what to say when I pray. Everyone begins that way. It only grows by learning to pray more and then maybe you grow when you read about prayer books or you look at the Psalms, how prayer, or maybe you just get to pray with some seasoned prayer warriors and you begin to learn and eventually you will have a vocabulary of prayer that really is unique to you. Now, it might be a hodgepodge of things you've mixed together from other places, but that vocabulary of prayer will be unique to you, but it's something that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because we recognize the call to a life of prayer is a call of, uh, to life of constant communion with God. And so we grow in that skill. So we are to devote ourselves, give up time prioritizing it because prior, prioritizing private prayer is essential to the practice of graciousness toward others. That's what we're going to see. When Paul connects those together, they are one and the same. I almost rabbit trailed and I'm not going to because the spirit is healing me of my ADHD. Um, so then he says to devote yourselves to prayer. And then he says a new a, a phrase that modifies this idea. He says, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. This is a really fascinating idea. So, so the idea to, of staying alert means to be awake. That's what it means. To be awake and to be vigilant. More specifically, to be watchful. So one way in which this word would have been used is if there was a watchman on the tower keeping guard for enemy attacks, it was imperative that that watchman not go to sleep. That watchman needed to stay awake, but then when he stayed awake, he couldn't be sipping on cognac and um, cigars while he played solitaire. That's not vigilance. It is a concentrated staying awake with vig vigilance for a purpose. He was being watchful. He was in fact a guardian in that moment. This would have been this, the connotations of this idea to stay awake, stay vigilant, stay watchful, stay on guard. Now here's what's fascinating about this. Because if we would act, um, because if we would ask Paul, what we're getting from him is that you have to remain awake by guarding your life of prayer. See, devote yourself to prayer, stay awake, stay watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is what Paul says here. So in other words, our prayer life, there's an acknowledgement, it has to be guarded. Prayer life, although it is the richest and most foundational aspect of spiritual discipline, it is also the thing that will break your heart and turn you into a cynic and turn you into an evangelical zombie who goes through the motions but has no real emotional confidence that God is presently working in your life, nor will he work in your life. Because you probably encountered a situation when prayer was most important to you, it was least effective in terms of the way you came to define how this all worked. This is why it's easy then to let go because honestly, I let go of hope, not because I, my faith in God's ability to diminish, but it, was so, but it broke my heart because I couldn't understand the God who is able still refuses. And, and that did not make sense to me because I felt like the things I ask of the Father, I would gladly give to my children if they asked of me, it, where they mattered the most. And so it is easy then to get jilted from that. 
And so therefore, Paul, there's this wisdom of scripture that says prayer is mysterious, it's beautiful, it's foundational, but you've got to guard it. Because if you don't guard it, you will lose it. And I might not have understood that when I was 18 and getting up and putting on my army fatigues because I was a warrior for Jesus and spending an hour in spiritual warfare, which I loved doing, by the way. Um, I, I didn't understand that would be a day when I would be embarrassed by telling that story and that that's the last thing I wanted to do was become dependent on a life of prayer because it disappointed me so deeply. I'm not there now, thank God. But I was there at one time and now I recognize prayer does have to be guarded or you will lose it. And Paul says this, be watchful in it and guard it. But here's what's amazing. Is it difficult to guard your prayer life? Nope. Is it complicated? Nope. Does it require you to understand the depths of higher level theological thinking? Nope. What Paul says is this, the way we guard our prayer life is with thanksgiving. If gratitude remains the core foundational atmosphere of our prayer life, that is enough to guard us from the brokenheartedness and cynicism that can come whenever we are disappointed because we may have misunderstood the nature of how this mysterious thing called prayer is supposed to work. What guards us from that is the cultivation of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is expressing gratitude with the words of one's mouth and the posture of one's heart. So what we see here is Paul is saying essentially this, be devoted to prayer by guarding that prayer with thanksgiving. In other words, you can't be devoted to it unless you guard it. And you can't guard it unless you cultivate an attitude of thanksgiving. I'm really trying really hard. My goal, other than this one example this morning, is to get through the entire sermon without slipping into the, sat the, the platitude of gratitude is the attitude. But I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. But, uh, but, but this is what he says. You're, you're called to be devoted to prayer. The only way you can do that is if you guard your prayer life. The only way you can guard your prayer life is with thanksgiving. It is the only thing that keeps us from taking the blessing of the grace of God and turning it into an entitlement. But once it becomes an entitlement, because thanksgiving is the thing that prevents that, once that goes and prayer becomes an entitlement, we are setting ourselves up to be bitterly disappointed and to become cynical with the whole idea of prayer altogether because we miss the heart of it, which is relationship and gratitude. This is what Paul says. Without the guard of thanksgiving, I turn prayer into an act of entitlement and selfishness that will result in cynicism. I will likely not label this cynicism as such, but I will indulge a narrative of, quote, disappointment with God that will justify my neglect of prayer. Now, I'm using words like cynicism and I know that mostly we use those words kind of pejoratively to be saying something negative. I mean it in the most non-emotional sense of the word. I understand why we become cynics. I do get that. We were disappointed with prayer. We but, but here's the thing. What I hope that we will be open to is the thought that maybe you were just disappointed by toxic theologies of prayer because there are toxic theologies of prayer that are out there in the Christian world. There are bad ideas about God 
And if we believe those bad ideas about God, we don't come out of that unscathed. It does damage to our soul. It does damage to our understanding of God. It does damage to our understanding of who we are. Therefore, it makes us impossible to love our neighbor with the love of Jesus. But ultimately, that narrative is not a narrative of disappointment with God. That is a narrative of being liberated by really bad ideas that the Holy Spirit had to painfully remove from your mind and psyche so you could get on the business of liberated living. And that's the only way you could walk through that reality. So I am not condemning that narrative of disappointment with God. I've sat and listened and more times than not sat and wept with at this point hundreds of folks from our community that share awful stories of how their hearts were broken by their treatment of church, church people, abuse of church leadership, or even the narrative trying to live out what I would consider toxic fairy tale theology about a magical sky wizard in the sky that just wants you to indulge your immediate need for gratification all the time. And, so, and so, so I understand that there are legitimate reasons why we turned our back on it. There are legitimate reasons why I have a whole library of prayer books that I used to love that I literally didn't crack open for over a decade. And honestly, if you came to me and you said the phrase, have you prayed about it? I would have to say, the only thing I'm praying about is the strength to not punch you in the teeth right now. That would have been my response. It was so painful for me to even hear those words not because in my mind I wanted prosperity but because I really had a longing in my heart that it seemed that God said no to and so that puts us on an emotional journey and so we won't call it cynicism we'll call it disappointment with God but I want to suggest to you that maybe it was disappointment with something else because at the end of the day the reality is this both justified and unjustified cynicism and the fruit of prayerlessness generate the same consequence of hindering my awareness of God's intimacy with me. And it doesn't matter. I could be completely out of line and misunderstood and my cynicism is completely unjustified. Or you might hear my story and you would say, you're a victim here. I understand why you would become cynical, but the issue is whether the cynicism is justified or unjustified, the consequences remain the same. There is an interruption in my living in conscious awareness of God's intimacy with me, mostly because I'm protecting myself, which again, I won't do it too often. Wasn't it a beautiful moment last Sunday when Jamie prophetically declared you do not have to protect your heart from God. Many of us, in an effort to protect our heart from church, has synonymously put God in that box, and we've protected ourselves from him as well. Well, this is why we have to be aware of these narratives, because justified and unjustified, the cynicism bears the same negative fruit. Then he goes from this saying, be devoted to prayer. And the way you do it is by guarding it with thanksgiving. And then he says, then to pray for us. So when you're devoted to prayer, part of that prayer, which includes your thanksgiving, 
also needs to be for us. And this is where he says, pray to us for what? That God would open a door. It's really the only request that's there. Pray that God will open a door. And then we're told why he wants God to open the door. So that number one, the door would be open to them. In other words, that they would have favor with their audience for the word. What word? To speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in change, chains so that I should make it known. So it's that God would open a door to Paul and his team so that they could speak the mystery of Christ just as they should be speaking the mystery of Christ. Now let's walk through this for just a minute. What are they to ask God to do? Open a door to speak the word of the mystery of Christ. What's that? What's the mystery of Christ? Now, had we not gone through Colossians, I would take many answers. But because we've gone through Colossians, only one answer will get the prize this morning. What is the mystery of Christ that he's referring to in this letter that he's been talking about throughout this letter? Oh, I know, I know. Yes, what is it? It's the ABCs. Admit you're a sinner. Believe God rose Christ from the dead and confess him as Lord and then you'll be saved. That's the mystery of Christ Paul was proclaiming, right? No. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Not a track, not a utilitarian explanation of the gospel so that you can get your product of heaven when you die. That is not what they did. What they were proclaiming is this mystery that Paul says actually has been hidden until now, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is what he's asking them to pray for an open door for. The mystery of Christ, which is, and I'm sorry, but I, I, I'm going to be speaking this sentence, and I don't know about you, but I'm gonna be hearing Elton John roaring in the background. What is the mystery of Christ? He lives in you. That's the mystery of Christ. He lives in you as the hope of glory. Now, why must they ask God to do this? Well, he doesn't say. So let me be clear. You know, even the apostle Paul, I don't know how familiar you are with your reading your New Testament letters, but even in there, he takes a break and says, uh, I gotta confess, this probably, I'm not saying that I'm speaking on behalf of God here. This is just my opinion. Stay single, is actually what he's gonna say in that little section where he says that. And yes, thanks, thank God that Paul wasn't necessarily right on everything. Um, uh, but, but he admits it. So I'm admitting this too. This is, this is my, I was gonna call it a pastoral reflection. It's not, it's just a follower of Jesus trying to wrap his head around the whys of some of this stuff. Well, why is it so necessary if this is the truth and it's so beautiful that it requires God to open the door so it could be heard? Why? Well, I submit to you this. From the moment we are born, we are discipled into the assumption that we are incomplete and must do something to make ourselves complete and worthy of love. We are so inundated with that reality that even after we are walking with Christ, many of us don't make the emotional breakthrough of realizing to walk with Christ is to mean that I'm made complete. 
Now, it doesn't mean that it's the end of my journey. It doesn't mean that it's the end of my maturity. It doesn't mean that it's the end of my growth and my skill development. All of those things still are before me, but I am pursuing those plays, those things, because they are in keeping with the complete identity that I have been given, not because I lack and I'm trying to make myself something that I'm not. Those are two very, very different motives for sometimes pursuing the exact same activities. Some of us are pursuing Christian discipline to become, hopefully more of us are pursuing Christian discipline because it reveals who we are. And who we are isn't what we earned or worked for, but it was given to us as a gift called grace. And so we are so discipled in this that it literally takes God a supernatural presence to open up our minds to work past that false thinking to really accept and appreciate the reality of the proclamation of the good news, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Only a power both within and beyond ourselves can awaken a revelation that we are complete in Christ and God's intimacy with us is our birthright as creatures made in his image and brought to life by his breath. Every soul, whether they're religious or irreligious, and by whatever name they call themselves in terms of their faith tradition, every soul that's alive is alive because of the presence of the breath of God, making them a living soul. Go back to Genesis 1. That's how this all comes about. Clay, mud, fashion, breath into the nostrils, and mankind became a living soul. And so we need the Spirit to remind us of that reality of our birthright. Pretty quick sermon, verses two through four. I'm looking at my time here. We all knew we'd beat the Pentecostals to the buffet. We might beat the Church of Christ to the buffet today. Not so fast. I'd like to take a moment to not just talk about ideas, but maybe to respond to what I'm talking about. You know, one of the things that I've been reminded of is that in this room, in this community, there are three general stories. Some are here, you've transplanted from other churches. And in America, predominantly, that's how new church plants grow. It's typically not growth from new conversions, but it's growth because you just got to have better coffee than that church down the road, right? So you get transplants move around. And that's great. You've been on an offline journey of faith. You found a common place here. And now you're kind of walking this journey with us. And that's wonderful. Our lives are intersecting in a moment, in this moment. And hopefully it will be meaningful for both of us. Or maybe for whatever reason, you've come in here and you don't know much about a life of faith but maybe you are in crisis and churches you've known from history is a place you can go when you're crisis. Or maybe, <laughs> this, is a true, this is a true anecdote, maybe your Jesus-loving grandmother promised that they will buy, buy you an AR-15 if you'll come to church with her every once in a while. That was an interesting discipleship introduction. And uh, I thought, do you have the AR-15 now? I mean, I wanna know where I'm standing here. Uh, so, so yeah, maybe, maybe that's happened, but that's great. I don't care why 
you're here. I'm glad that you're here with us. But there is an increasing population of folks at Christ Community or Church that are healed because they needed, they're here because they needed a place to heal. That they are here convalescing over toxic theology, bad ideas about God, and abusive spiritual leadership models. And they're tired. And they really don't want to fill out a service card the second Sunday their hair's here so we can put them to work. And, and many of those people are deeply wounded, and yet there's a part of them still in their soul animated enough to still want to pursue Jesus and to want to seek to follow Jesus in a like-minded community. But you're hurting. You, you can't even bear the thought of cracking open your one-year Bible to read one of the passages today because maybe someone ripped those out of context and judged you or told you you had to reject your children for what they're doing rather than keep them in their home and love them. And so you had to choose between fidelity to the church or the God-given fidelity that you give to your children. And someone made you choose between the two of those things. And so you're hurt and you're wounded and you're like, yeah, I, I'm with you already. I, I used to like to get up in my fatigues as a soldier of the Lord and fight Satan at six in the morning. And I liked it mainly, mainly because it made me feel better than all the other Christians I knew because I didn't know anyone else that was doing that, but that's a side thing. But yeah, I haven't been able to open my mouth to God at all. And, and I remember when I was moving back into the reawakening of my prayer life, just how awkward it felt, just like first dates. It's like I almost didn't know what to say. And for a long time, I had to begin with my confession of agnosticism before I could pray. I don't know why, it just felt good. Like it was a, it was a moment of integrity for Artie to say, I really have no idea if you're listening to this. I, I honestly have no idea if anyone is hearing these words other than my own brain and the duck in my pond. But nonetheless, here I go. And for a few years, I began my prayer that even when my faith began to get restored, it still became a habit to begin with my confession of atheism. Not sure if you're here listening to any of this, Lord. And if you are, I'm even less sure that you care. But nonetheless, here it is. And over time, the Holy Spirit, what did, this, what did Jesus say? It only takes a mustard seed to move a mountain. Well, there was a season in my brokenness, I held on to that passage as my primary life passage. Because even though I'd gone to Bible school, even though I was getting paid to work for Jesus, the mustard seed is all I had left. But it was enough. It was all that was needed in the grace and wisdom of God to let that thing begin to bloom and this time develop a root system that went about four times lower than the previous root system. And then after that had gotten established, then fruit began to blossom. But this fruit was healthy fruit. It was fruit that could nourish both me and the people to whom I have responsibility. But like Jesus said, that seed had to die get buried all alone in the darkness of the dirt, just hoping that things that the seed couldn't control like sunlight and rain and care would intercede and that life would be born from that. Even though when you go down in the ground, you're not sure that there will be. My friends, I have been there. I understand that dark, broken-hearted place. But ironically, the only way out is by going through the door that you're avoiding. 
The obstacle is the way. So at some point, you've got to stand up, face that obstacle, face that dreaded door, and push it open one more time. And just see if possibly on the other side, the landscape has changed just a little bit. And I have full confidence that you will find that it will. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 14, 38, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he says, the way you stay awake is so that you pr- is, is through praying. How do you keep your soul awake? Well, I have, like most preachers, given so many sermons on prayer. If you wanna go through the archives, you'll find all the traditional models and all these things. I just wanted to give you a list of words that I've started using as my loose, very, very loose liturgy now. And um, I'll tell you, I've really enjoyed this approach to prayer. And so if you're in a place where traditional, even traditional terminology is hard for you, I wanted to just, these aren't new ideas, but they're new ways of approaching ancient ideas that I wanna share with you. These five elements as a model for prayer. And whether you need it or not, I would ask everyone to take the month of September to practice with it. Let's just see how it affects our community. I guess Siri thought I was calling her when I said September, I apologize. Um, So a simple model for prayer for both the novice and the veteran might be this, gratitude, wakefulness, healing, awareness, and service. Those are the five words. Gratitude, wakefulness, healing, awareness, and service. What do I mean by that? First of all, because Paul says the way we guard our life is through through thankfulness, thanksgiving. We begin every day practicing thanksgiving. And that is as simple as taking time to notice your surroundings. Or what I really like to do, as this has evolved, or is rehearse the moments of grace and joy from the previous day. So this week um, was uh, presented some emotional challenges for me, they stirred up narratives that ultimately end up in my pursuing self-destructive behavior in order to ease, numb the pain from the narratives that still exist up here. That, those moments came to me this week. And then, then I had a moments of people wanting to say, can we get together, talk about this, talk about that. And I just randomly looked at holes in my schedule and filled it out. But by the time I got to Friday evening, I realized that the sequence of conversations that happened this week layered one right on top of the other. One, even though they were completely disconnected and it reminded me, that's it, that's the rhythm of grace. That's like me experiencing life as just random events of holes in my schedule, but the sovereignty and the goodness of the spirit superseding and overseeing those details so that what was random to me ended up being literally the, sequ- the sequential blessing that I needed to move me out of my toxic place into a place where the spirit's flowing again. So, so sometimes that happens just by thinking, I don't always see them the day that they happen. I've got to think back a little bit of those moments of grace and joy. Sometimes I'm aware of them, but sometimes I'm not. So whatever it is, I mean, sometimes I don't get past feeling overwhelming gratitude for the three beautiful daughters that I've been blessed with or the beautiful woman that I, I, I get to sojourn this life with, or just these moments of this wonderful community that personally I think is utterly unique from any other community I've been a part of. And I've been grateful for the other communities, but there's some real beauty here. 
there are some really precious saints that dwell among us that we have access to. So a lot of times it's just that, but, but you just never know. There is these moments of unexpected grace. The problem is if you don't develop the skill of recognition, you'll live most of your life without recognizing they ever came to you. Why? Because religion tells you to look for the, the spectacular and the spirit is leading you to look at the significant. And they are there. They're just easy to overlook. So we begin with this attitude of cultivating thanksgiving for the blessings in our lives, then wakefulness. What I mean by that is that I, I want to stay awake during the day. And in this sense, in a specific way, I want to be aware of what I have ahead of me. And I want to consciously ask the Spirit to keep me awake when I'm tempted to drift away through self-centeredness or anxiety or anger or despair. They may be different for you. These are the things that lull my soul to sleep, though, on a consistent basis. And I am nerdy enough that I've done many hours of work trying to discern what those are. And this is what I'm aware of at this point. So perhaps reflect on the moments you may have fallen asleep on the previous day. That's where it's most accessible to me. Lord, did I miss it yesterday? Was there a moment where I slipped away again? And the Spirit is often faithful to remind me of those moments. Ah, yes, I did that. I I slipped away. I wasn't present there. Well, let's do better today, Holy Spirit. Here's what I have ahead of me. When, when I'm having, there's this person and I already have a preconceived notion of what they're gonna need from me. Therefore, I'm already tempted to not listen to you because I think I know. But most of the time, no, 100% of the time, I've gotten it wrong. And yet, my ego still thinks this is gonna be the next time where I nail this without the aid of the spirit. And so, 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 so I think through that, Lord, let me be present there. Don't let me drift away. And, and if it's something offensive to me, let me stay present. Don't let me use my offense to justify drifting away so I can start making a counter argument. Help me stay grounded. Help me to listen. So I'm praying for the spirit to be there to help me stay awake. And then number three, and I love this practice because as a burnt out charismatic who was nearly put in the ground by toxic self-centered theology, I had a hard time praying for God to heal anybody at one point. I'm not there now, though, thank God. I love to pray for healing. I love it. It is a moment in which my heart is softened because of the awareness of the suffering of those around me. So I didn't ask permission, but we've all been very public, so that might look like this. I may get to this point, and maybe I'm consciously aware of suffering that my wife or children or extended family are going through and I ask God, would you heal them? I don't give him a prescription to what that has to look like anymore uh, because that broke my heart. But I ask God, would you please intervene? Would you walk with them in this? And yes, even though I don't understand all the reasons God says yes, no, and wait, I still say, God, would you relieve them of this suffering? Knowing that in his wisdom, there may be something going on. I, I don't care. I'm finite. It's his job, not mine. So all I know is a friend is suffering and I want God to intervene. So over the past three years, that might drift me to think about Mike and Nan May in my morning prayer. Now, early on or someone times, I would try to get credit for it by texting. Hey guys, prayed for you this morning. You guys remember those texts you'd receive. But at some point I realized that's not necessary to do every time. I can just sit in the presence of God and say, Lord, I love Mike and Nan. Would you continue to sustain them on this journey? And although I rejoice, I'm so grateful for the, the 
positive report after positive report, I still ask that you would eradicate every cancer cell from Mike's body and make him whole. I still pray it on a regular basis. But slowly what happens is the suffering around me that I'm insulated by from my own narratives of suffering, I'm missing that. Well, this is a moment where I get to rejoin my community on a deep emotional level that's real. And now I still might send a text, but it's not to get credit. It's because maybe that particular moment, my heart was just particularly moved and I just want my friends to know it. I'm not trying to get pastoral credit. I just want my friends to know, I still see that you're suffering and I'm still participating in it with you to the limits that I can. So I pray for healing. And the fourth, just ask for awareness. And I'm gonna say something here that I don't know everyone's background and you know that I'm Pentecostal charismatic so this might be more accessible to me than to you, but I've tried to use maybe model different language for it, but simply awareness. Ask the Spirit to keep you aware of the signs of His presence and guidance throughout the day. Yes, I said it. Become someone who has the skill of recognizing the signs. Half of you may not think that those signs exist. I get it. I went through a spell that I did not believe in them anymore either. But as my heart heals and has been healing, I'm asking God, make me aware the signs of your presence and guidance throughout the day. And then train yourself to pay attention when the Spirit opens a window to your soul. You just never know when it's going to happen. And I'll be honest, because I want to be as practical as I can here. Most of the time, those windows of the soul that the Spirit is gently opening are, dealt, are, are, are discerned mostly by my emotions. So I'll have an emotion. And I don't judge it anymore. If it's a positive emotion, negative emotion, I don't care. I just want to say, Holy Spirit, what is that trying to tell me? What is that trying to reveal? Not emotions, I'll pay attention now to my body. And if someone says something and all of a sudden the top of my back tightens up, well, before I would ignore that, now I'm stopping. I'm going, okay, Lord, what's that about? Some part of me just reacted to that, and I don't know why. What's going on there? The Holy Spirit's a pretty good therapist. And I'm not saying don't go to therapy. You should go to therapy. I'm very grateful for therapists. Um, but I'm also saying there's a lot of healing that can take place if we'll train ourselves to just be aware with the Spirit's help. I want to be aware of that. Song. You know, like I've watched, I think what's interesting for me is listening to the women in my life talk to me about their responses to A Handmaid's Tale. Um, I've noticed over time that what was happening is the women in my life were giving safe language to talk about the real wounds that misogyny has inflicted upon their own souls. And it took this narrative, this novel, novelization, to begin to help them recognize this. Now, none of them have ever been forced to go into um, captivity so that they could just be used for breeding purposes. I'm not saying all of that, but what I'm saying is that God, the Holy Spirit will use art to unlock parts of our soul if we're willing to stop and listen. And now I pay really close attention when someone says, Pastor, have you seen The Handmaid's Tale? I want to know, tell me about it. What's speaking to you? Why do you think that I should watch that? Now, I haven't seen it, so look, if there's objectionable material in it and you watch it, please, no emails, text tonight. That those, all those emails and texts, if you were offended by anything in the show, those go to the third floor on Wednesday afternoons. Um, 
But I'm just saying, you just never know. Or have you had a moment, a song that you've heard all your life, all of a sudden, you're driving down the road, you hear a lyric, and you start crying? Like, I know none of the men, of course, have never had that. Uh, but I gave up my man card a long time ago with my confession of my love of um, Josh Groban. Um, <laughs> October's coming. Josh Groban Christmas album is in the queue, baby. It's, I'm ready to go. Can't wait to hear that sweet, buttery voice again. Um, but uh, sorry, I digress. Um, what were I even talking about? Uh, oh, 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 but you have these moments where you just, you just weep. Or sometimes I'll watch shows and I can tell they're maybe boring to everyone else and I'm trying to hold back the emotion I'm feeling as I'm, what's going on there? The Holy Spirit has opened a window up to my soul. He's trying to whisper his truth. And yes, it often happens through worship songs in scripture. I'm not discounting that. But as I've trained myself to become more aware, it's happening all the time. There are breezes that come in from a window of the soul. They're like a gentle tap on the shoulder that sometimes they're so subtle, I can brush them off because maybe I thought a butterfly landed on my shoulder. But it's the spirit there inviting me to participate in the wealth of what he is doing in me and around me. So I pray for awareness, but it is not over. And I have a typo in this last line I apologize for. Ultimately, and I pray that God will empower me to be useful to others today. Lord, and that is for me the linchpin. I, it's all, it's communion and action. My intimacy with God, I want to terminate in good service to other people, in the kindness that I bring. I don't want that to be something I indulge like a private secret mystic. I wanna take that experience of the mystic and bring it into the streets. I want other people to be served from the same banquet of grace from which I've nourished my own soul. That is ultimately the expression here. So Lord, today make me useful, both in the way I intend to be and in the ways that I'm not seeing. So would you all stand with me as the worship team comes forward? See, I ended up extending it out to a normal sermon length. After those five movements, which sometimes takes three to five minutes and sometimes half an hour. If I don't have to have rules around it, I don't put rules around it. Sometimes I wake up blank and cranky and I kind of go through the motions. But then they terminate with this prayer that I, you don't have to do forever. I'm just asking you to play with this model for the month of September and then end it, your time of prayer, like this. I hope is that most of us will have recited this for the next 30 days. So you can recite it with me as it come up on the overhead. Made a mistake here. The first line, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. That's actually the title of the prayer. So we're going, oh no, someone fixed it for me. Awesome. Very good. Um, so uh, just my notes are messed up. So, so let's just pray this together. It's the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, 
Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.